0: I'll oh, What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is is better. The soil of a man's heart is near, Lewis. How did you know my name? The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at
1: all that guy's getting up there don't let him go on the
0: road
1: get him get the baby get the baby
0: About donut Lewis. The place is evil. I brought you something, mommy. Come on out. I brought you something. Uh, 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 uh. <coughs> <coughs> Lewis, sometimes dad is better. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground, the ground went sour.
1: Go on. Lie down, play dead, be dead. Darn it. No! Sometimes
0: that is better. Pet Cemetery is the story of Lewis Creed, who is a doctor who moves his family from Chicago to rural Maine. And behind his new home is a pet cemetery for animals killed in the road in front of his house. But behind the pet cemetery is an even older more ancient burial ground with mystical powers that soon begin to have a dark hold over dr creed with the story hurtling towards a terrifying and inevitable conclusion and the 1989 version uh was directed by mary lambert and released by paramount pictures and it's one of the only novels written by king that he himself adapted for the screen This is one of the reasons I think it's one of the most effective screen adaptations of King's work, coupled with the fact that King himself insisted it be shot in rural Maine where the novel is based.
1: Hello and welcome back to Scream Attics. I'm your host, Jinx, and that was Kathy Charles talking about Mary Lambert's 1989 Stephen King adaptation, Pet Cemetery. Ms. Charles is a writer known for penning the novel John Belushi is Dead, as well as the upcoming films 1031, Fangoria's Castle Freak remake, and the recently announced Jacob's Wife. Ms. Charles, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about one of my favorite uh, cultural artifacts of all time, Pet Cemetery. <laughs>
1: Now, as with every episode, I'll start by asking: out of any horror movie you might have chosen, any of your favorites, why go with Pet Cemetery specifically?
0: Well, uh, Pet Cemetery is not my favorite horror movie. My favorite horror movie of all time is Carrie, another King adaptation, uh, but I mean. Brian De Palma is my favorite filmmaker of all time, so Carrie becomes my favorite horror film by default, I feel. Uh, but Pet Cemetery is definitely in the top 10 uh, of my favorite horror films of all time, which also includes three other King adaptations. I know King adaptations are sometimes maligned and people don't think that they're very good, but I think we've had some really stunning ones, um, Pet Cemetery being one of them. But Pet Cemetery overall is perhaps my favorite story of all time. It's definitely my favorite novel of all time. I think it is the greatest American Gothic horror novel ever written. And I know that's a very big call. Uh, But it is just, um, it's a story that completely enraptured me from the first time I read it when I was, uh, I believe, 11 years old. And it just continues to captivate me and move me. And I feel like the Adaptation by mary Lambert uh, was was really great in terms of really capturing the feel of that novel and king's universe in general
1: absolutely I agree entirely and you know it's funny we were just talking before we began recording this movie is now thirty years old like it is <laughs> it, it's reached the point when we should probably start regarding it as a classic and yet do you feel the movie gets the respect that it deserves you know there are plenty of horror films uh you know out there that you know people appreciate and everyone knows by name uh that everyone is familiar with and yet you know Pet Cemetery is one of those certainly but it's also a movie that feels like it doesn't quite garner the respect that other horror movies maybe uh of, of this vintage do or uh you know other horror movies you know uh, that adapt King's work uh You know, it it, it just seems like it's kind of, it's the redheaded stepchild, as it were, of Stephen King adaptations (laughs) that we actually like. You know, do you think I'm completely wrong for that?
0: No, I don't. I mean, often when people talk about the uh, 89 version, they talk about it in terms of being a camp classic. And while there are elements of the film that can be described as camp... I think, in all fairness, most of Stephen King's work, especially his earlier work, had a sort of occasional cornball humour to them. Um, you know, he's, he's from rural Maine, and a lot of the humour of rural Maine uh, can be found in in, in his novels. But, uh, you, you know, so, so there is that element of it, you know, having a, maybe a little bit of silliness, but, I mean, the themes that it is dealing with are some really hefty themes. And you know it has a lot in common actually with the shining. And what's interesting about uh, the novel pet cemetery is that the novel itself was written in nineteen seventy nine not long after the shining. In fact, I believe that the stand may have been the only novel written in between. and the the novel pet cemetery wasn't published until eighty three. Uh, As most people famously know, uh, King didn't want to publish it because he found it so terrifying and he ended up giving it to his publisher to finish a contract dispute. And then the film itself came in 89. So there were all these, you know, there was an amount of time in between these things. But it shares a lot of of themes with The Shining, you know, it's about uh, a middle aged man who is very flawed, who has a lot of inner demons and struggles with those demons and comes into contact with this sort of primordial, mystical, ancient force that seeks to exploit those weaknesses within him to the ends of the destruction of his entire family. So in a lot of ways, I feel like Pet Cemetery is actually having a bit of a conversation with The Shining, and it may not be as obvious because in the shining it's about a writer so you know king very obviously says hey you know this is this is about a writer so it's easier for us to infer that it's largely about king but you know at this time when he was writing these novels you know king had a lot of protagonists who um were the protagonists that he he gave us were always struggling with something and, you know, there are so many horror stories that is, you know, nice, normal, ordinary family move into a house and it's haunted and nice, normal, ordinary family. You know, they're just lovely people. And then this dark force comes into their life. But during this period with The Shining and Pet Cemetery and Cujo and novels like that, all of King's protagonists were already Flawed. They were already wrestling with some kind of darkness inside of them uh, that was being exploited by an evil force And of course in The Shining Jack Torrance is an alcoholic. Uh, he has a very violent past uh, But then in Pet Cemetery, uh, And I don't know this doesn't come across as much in the film as it does in the novel But when we're introduced to the main character of Lewis Creed, he's a man who has a, a, a certain amount of resentment towards his family now, it's a kind of it's there's nothing there's no major crisis in the family like in the shining he didn't break one of his kids arms he didn't get fired from his job, you know, he's a provider, he looks after his family, he has a great profession, he's a doctor, he's respected. There's some, you know, problems with the in-laws, but that's kind of the the extent of the issues that are happening within this family. But when we're introduced to the character of Lewis Creed, he's filled with this resentment towards his family. You know, they arrived to the new house and he's in a bad mood and he is already daydreaming about running away from them and escaping them. And uh, so he's a man who's already filled with this these kind of dark urges, kind of, he's trying to already pull away from his responsibilities towards his family and towards domesticity. And it's interesting to note that in Pet Cemetery, there was a family in that house who lived there for 15 years and nothing happened to them? They didn't come into contact with the pet cemetery. But when Lewis Creed arrives there, he sets off this chain of events. So it makes you think, well, is it Lewis Creed that's causing this? And uh, and I ultimately think that it is. And I find those stories, in terms of the horror genre, much more interesting than the you know nice ordinary family meets a dark force. It says something more about who we are as people and the things that we struggle with and the darkness within ourselves. And just another small note in terms of this being a conversation with The Shining, uh, you know, famously Stephen King was very unhappy with the adaptation of The Shining that, that Kubrick directed and Kubrick used to, Steve King at certain hours during the night and talk about the project and apparently one evening Kubrick got on the phone to King and said to him do you believe in God and King says that he said yes and Kubrick said I don't and hung up and Pet Sematary is a story that's very concerned with God especially in the novel there's a lot of talk about God and whether he exists or not and it's never really answered we know that the darkness exists we know the bad forces exist and bad supernatural forces exist but the the existence of god is uh is 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 unanswerable in pet cemetery and so i feel like maybe pet cemetery was king mulling that question over a little bit, as well as, you know, the obvious influences of the fact that he himself moved into a house with the road and the cat and all those things that, that everyone uh, knows really well. But I also think perhaps the experience that happened on The Shining where King felt like someone had taken his work and misinterpreted it, maybe that's why King took such a heavy hand in the 89 adaptation of Pet Cemetery where he wrote the script, which uh, he he rarely does with any of his adaptations. He demanded that it be shot in rural Maine uh, an hour from his house. He was very involved in the production every step of the way. And, you know, this may have been in response to the fact that the Shining adaptation was not what he wanted to to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much you said there that's fascinating to me. I uh, That's a very good point. I think Lewis and Jack are very much, I mean, they could be brothers or at least, you know, sides of a coin in a way as far as, you know, who those men are and like what their journeys are, you know, I, and it's funny too that you note that in Pet Cemetery, the family that lived in the, uh, the Creed house, you know, before the Creeds arrived, you know, weren't really set upon by any sort of affliction whatsoever. They weren't exploited by the evil in the ground in the same way that Lewis is, much in the same way I think in The Shining, you know, The overlook, you know, how many years passed between Jack arriving, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the previous caretaker who went mad, Grady. Uh, It's almost like these places that King writes about are places that wait for weak people, you know, people whose frailty that they can exploit, you know, otherwise they just lie dormant. And I think that's really interesting. And plus, too, with Jack and Lewis, I mean, there seems King seems to be talking about himself in a way in that, you know, he's by that point a father who maybe has concerns about himself as a man almost. You know, you see that reflected in both of those characters, I think. You know, Jack, I think, obviously finds himself dangerous because of a substance addiction. And, you know, he worries about being, you know, uh, a bad father in that sense, in a very direct, very violent, very external sort of way. But in Lewis's case, I wonder, you know, watching the movie again for this discussion... There is, you know, there's that scene with Ellie on the couch when he is trying to have an honest conversation with her about death and, you know, the afterlife and God. And it seems like not only is he merely a father who is having this conversation for the first time with a child, but it seems like almost, in a way, and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, that this is the first time that he's wrestling with these issues himself. There is a kind of immaturity To Lewis, I think, as a character Uh, that I don't know, it it, it seems like we're watching in a strange way a guy who I think he's a good man at heart, but I don't think he's a very responsible person. Obviously, I think the story bears that out, you know, in the final half, certainly. But I don't think he's much of a responsible parent either. At times, it seems like he's. Maybe a guy who's not far out of college, who still has some growing up to do, and maybe he wasn't quite ready to start a family when he did. And so, you know, it really comes as no surprise later on when he makes the decisions he does. It seems like they're made not only out of grief, not merely out of desperation, but there's a sort of, and I think to me anyway, I mean, the, the movie is kind of about this. It It's just, it's almost about this inability to process grief in a healthy way anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think it's largely about a, not so much, I mean, grief is such a huge part of the story, but it's also largely about the denial of death. So as soon as we are introduced to Lewis, Lewis is a doctor who has come into contact with death many, many times. And, you know, in the novel, they talk about the fact that Lewis himself does not believe in God, has never felt a soul pass by him when someone has died in his Er. so you know he has this 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 i mean as a doctor i mean what is a doctor meant to do a doctor is meant to stave off death you know in all its forms so i don't think it's so much that he lacks maturity or he's an irresponsible parent but i think he has this desire to 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 push back on death in some ways and i mean it's this denial of death that we see repeated in the film in you know the return of the cat and then the return of the son and then the return of the wife it's a constant denial of death and what happens when you keep denying something it keeps kind of coming back to knock you on your ass and say no i am real and i exist uh but then on the other hand in terms of grief uh you know grief does play a large role in it as well and you know Uh, when Gage returns, you know, Gage's return is is a huge metaphor for the grief being experienced by his parents. Like grief is something that consumes you as a person and destroys you, and here you have the dead son literally coming back to literally consume his grieving parents. Um, So, you know, there's something very interesting going on there as well. But, I mean, also just on a very – on a very basic level, you know, one of the things I find brilliant about Pet Cemetery is King really did pinpoint the exact moment that most of us as human beings learn about our own mortality. It's normally with the death of a pet because that's uh, it's more likely for us to come into contact with death because you know pets don't live for a very long time. Um, so. I, I think that was really smart of the film to be about that, and to be about you know uh, a child discovering that at that point. And you know, I'm I'm not a parent, but I remember the conversation my mother had with me about death when I first discovered it. You know, I first discovered death where I had a cousin who came to me and was crying, and I said, "What are you crying about?" And I think I was maybe six years old, and she said, "Well, we're all going to die, and we're going to be in the ground, and we're going to rot." And you know I still remember the the visceral reaction I had to that, and I went running to my mom, saying, "Is this really what's going to happen and Then my mom had to figure out how to have that conversation with me so in that moment, I'm very sympathetic to to Lewis because that's a that's a hard conversation to have, and you know no one's figured it out. <laughs> you know, we, we don't have the answers. So I can't imagine being a parent, having to go through that with your child and figure out what the right thing is to say. That must be really difficult. And we see the two extremes of that in Rachel and Lewis. They both have very different uh, uh, repro- reproaches and responses to that, how to communicate to their child uh, the reality of death.
1: Absolutely. And I think that is a very good point you made, too, about, uh, you know, their their child being essentially the, you know, the grief that consumes them. But I wonder what you make. I mean, this might be a weird digression, but of that child also reaching out and consuming Judd, as it were, do you think it's merely kind of like a Tales from the Crypt style EC comics comeuppance? Or do you think the movie is trying to say in the book, by extension, are they trying to say something larger about the fact that one's own grief can consume people outside of their normal sphere, outside of the sphere of their own family?
0: Well, when we talk about King's flawed protagonists, uh, they're predominantly male. And I think that King is speaking really to ideas about what it means to be a man. And I mean, we, in Cujo, the main protagonist of Cujo is is a woman, um, refreshingly, and she's the flawed individual because she has had an affair, and there is a sense that perhaps you know she's brought some of this on herself. Um, but predominantly, you know, King deals with men, and the novel Pet Cemetery is all about uh, it's about the darkness in men's hearts, and we see that in the dialogue. You know, the soil of a man's heart is Stonia, you know a man grows what he can and he tends it and if you look at what happens with the pet cemetery there's never an instance where a woman buries something in the micmac burial ground in all the stories that we hear about it's always men it's men who are drawn to the burial ground it's men who who want to be part of that weird mystical force you know it's men who are seduced by it and I think, um, you know, when when King talks about those sorts of things, it's, it's about uh, Lewis is trying to, to, like, flee from, you know, like, domesticity and women. And, you know, the, the very opening line of the novel Pet Cemetery is about his relationship with Judd, Judd's the father that he never had. And then all throughout the book he's constantly talking about wanting to run away with Gage. He never talks about wanting to run away with Ellie. And, in fact, when Gage is killed, he's really resentful that everyone's looking to him to ease the grief of his wife and daughter. So there's this weird gender play going on. Um, And, you know, this this is a novel that was written in 79, you know, so, um, you know, there, there are the ideas about gender are always changing as we know but i feel like pet cemetery is really a story about the darkness that men have and how they they want to you know return to this this you know more primitive native you know state and you know i mean i also think that pet cemetery you could also position it not just in American Gothic fiction, but also in, you know, the man versus wild fiction, you know, books like Moby Dick and, uh, you know, Norman Mailer's Why Are We in Vietnam and Deliverance, which are, you know, stories of men going out out into the wild to be men again to leave behind you know the shackles of civilization and go back out there and, and be wild and beastly and um you know and in the novel pet cemetery there's constant reference to the children's storybook where the wild things are which is about a young boy who always wants to go into the wild and, and act like a monster so you know it's possible that perhaps you know in in king's eyes you know or just in in terms of this story the men have that tendency towards the uh, towards wanting that wildness more so than women potentially but uh getting back to your question about jud being killed i think that is an uh, i mean i think the men in this story are punished for the darkness within them. And I feel because of that, Judd had to go. But also there's that great debate that always goes on, like, who is Judd? Is Judd an agent for good or an agent for bad? Um, You know, if they had never met Judd, would this have ever happened? Probably not. But, you know, Judd is under the spell of the Pet Cemetery and the Mi'kmaq burial Ground in the same way that Lewis is. And as we know, the women in the story they don 't come under that spell, if anything, you know Rachel goes to the pet cemetery and she doesn 't even want to be there. Um, but you know there are a lot of instances of men falling prey to it and Just one more point, interestingly, in the novel, there is a character who is not featured in the film by the name of Steve Masterton, and he is, I think a, an assistant at the medical clinic at the university where Lewis works i think he 's a physician and uh, it's interesting that his name is Steve, <laughs> like that's interesting, and the the final scene of the book before the wife returns, the famous epilogue where the wife returns, is Steve Masterton what's coming to the pet cemetery and see, seeing Lewis carrying the wife over the deadfall and going up to the burial ground, and Steve kind of and he feels he feels the magnetic pull of the cemetery and Lucy's saying hey Steve come and help me bury this body in the cemetery you know it's it's wild work but let's go do it and Steve Masterton feels the pull of the cemetery and it's like he says it's like a magnet but then something snaps in him and he retreats so you know it's and then the i think the final line uh before the epilogue is Steve Masterton left Ludlow and never returned. So in some ways you could read that as King himself, you know, potentially looking at the events of the novel and looking at the, the man going into the heart of darkness and rejecting that and, you know, this final word on it of, no, I won't do that, and, you know, King was interviewed once and they, the interviewer asked him, would you ever bury someone in the pet cemetery? And he said, No and uh and i think that character was was saying no in the same way
1: that's really interesting i think you know i <laughs> I, I i was actually going to ask this later just as a uh you know a bit of fun but uh i guess i would pose the question to you living in the world of this book or this movie would you ever be tempted do you think to bury somebody in that cemetery
0: well i don't know because uh, the, the cemetery, it's – so uh, I'm, I'm not sure because I don't – it's all about what you bring to it in terms of what you're struggling with. I mean, there's the very basic thing of, hey, do we want our loved ones back when they die? Yeah, of course we do. But what's really interesting about this story is that Lewis is given every warning and every opportunity to not do it, and he keeps doing it. And this is where – I think it gets um, – this is where people find it amusing and funny because people keep going, hey, don't do the thing. And he's like, hey, I'm going to do the thing. And he just <laughs> won't stop. And, you know, uh, this this novel was somewhat based on the short story, The Monkey's Paw, where a family given three wishes and uh, and they make their wishes and one of them is the return of their dead son and he comes back and they're pretty sure, you know, they hear the knock on the door and – it sounds like a corpse is at the door, so they decide to wish him away. No one in The Monkey's Paw, I'm pretty sure they don't get given all these warnings of, hey, The Monkey's Paw is going to mess you up. It's going to give you the wrong thing. But like, it's like, constant, like even to the point where a ghost is introduced into the narrative to specifically tell Lewis, don't do this thing, it's really bad, and then Judd says, "Don't do this thing; it's really bad." He even gives him an example. He says, "This is what happened when we buried a guy. Don't do it." Lewis is like, oh, "Ah, no, it'll be different for me. I'm gonna do it." So, uh, I yeah, would, would I use it? I don't know. I don't know if it would have that pull on me. And, and like I said, uh, you know, as as you know, as a as a woman, maybe the make my background not as interested in me. I I don't know, or maybe just as as you know, I don't know, as a, as a rational. it wouldn't exert that hold. I'm not sure. It's a it's a, it's a, loaded question. Would I like dead people who I love to come back? Absolutely. But if everyone kept warning me that they were going to be really wrong, uh, probably not. But that's where Louis, you need the character of Lewis to be flawed, to be in a state where he's constantly denying death on a daily basis, as that's why he has to be a doctor. Because he has to want to keep denying death. It's part of his blood. It's part of his professional life. It's part of who he is as an individual.
1: I agree entirely. And I, you know, as... uh, I wonder if I would. I, you know, even even when... I know as a child, when I first saw this movie, I think its lesson was entirely lost on me. I, uh... Uh... It's it's a bit strange. I When I was around eight or nine, this movie was in heavy rotation on either HBO or Cinemax. It was always, you know, a viewing of this movie was never too far away, and so I was always very, very familiar with it, and, you know, it always terrified me. I could tell uh, any number of stories about uh, waking up at night uh, afraid that Zelda was under my bed. Um, <laughs> uh, that's still true all these years later. Um, but... <laughs> I I lost my best friend when I was just a kid uh, to a stupid um, gun accident. And uh, that was probably the first time that I had to process, you know, any sort of genuine grief. You know, I hadn't even lost a pet by that point and I lost my best friend. And, um, you know, there was this weird sort of, I remember this sort of, The reality of the situation didn't hit me. You know, the idea that everyone around me was quite sad that he was gone. And of course, I was too, but there was also this feeling that, well, this isn't permanent. You know, it's there is, I, I knew that it was, and yet at the same time, I was certain to my bones that it wasn't because I couldn't imagine this having happened in the first place. And mm. the very next time that I was sort of sitting, days, probably even God knows how long it would have been after, but. The next time that I watched this movie, I remember thinking, you know, I would do that. I would totally do that. To have him back, you know, I would do something that drastic. Of course, missing the lesson entirely that, you know, this was, this, this would be quite a terrible thing to do. And, you know, sure, you can have somebody that you love back, but at what cost? Um, and so that that always kinda of stuck with me. And now, you know, it's funny, every subsequent viewing of Pet Cemetery to some degree, it always brings that memory back of trying to wrestle with that idea in the first place. Now, as a as opposed to being eight years old, being thirty eight now, I uh would I do that? I don't know. I I I would hope not. Uh especially if for no other reason than, you know, my And especially in Lewis's case, too, if this is somebody who knows deep down what the, uh, you know, the fallout is going to be, you know, not merely to Mm. themselves, but potentially, you know, his neighbors, potentially the world as a whole. Uh, You know, I wonder if Lewis considers that that there is a selfishness to what he is doing in that this might actually hurt others and he simply doesn't care. Do you think he can even see that or is he so consumed with grief that he doesn't care about? you know, uh, his actions potentially harming others and not just himself?
0: Um, I, I'm not sure. I think that he's he definitely has characteristics of self-destruction, but I also think due to the forces that are controlling that burial ground, they're forces that they're kind of, they induce a madness in a person. And I think that... That that's what's happened to him. He's in the throes of this madness, you know, and this pull and allure of this place. But I'm um, speaking to what you were just mentioning in terms of wanting someone to be back so desperately. If I can bring up a film which is a little like *Pet Cemetery, but not not really. Uh, there's a, there's a great British film called *Truly Madly Deeply*, which is a devastating film, and it's it's a comedy but also a drama that uh, had Alan Rickman in it. And it's about a woman who loses her husband and she wishes for him to come back. She is in like, it's the most devastating portrayal of grief I've ever seen on screen. This woman is completely broken and she wishes for her husband to come back. And he does, they never explain how he just comes back as it goes. And the scene where he comes back and alleviates her grief is so heartbreaking in that moment, it's like every wish fulfilled for this woman and her grief is completely alleviated. And then her husband's back and he moves back in and he's a ghost. But then because he's back, she suddenly remembers all the things about him that were not so great and that haven't changed. And throughout the film, she kind of makes this progression of I wanted him back and I love him but also it may, I need to work through the process of letting go. So I think not, I mean, not to, to get too deep into it. I think I would maybe bury someone in the pet cemetery with the hope that they could come back for a little bit, just so I could process letting them go again. And if they come back and they're all messed up and they're not who they were, well, I think that process of letting go is going to be a little easier because it's, you know, it's like you don't want someone there who's suffering, and you know, this is a greater question of what exactly is it that comes back from the pet cemetery. You know, it's um, you know, in in the novel, it's the spirit of the Wendigo, but um, you know, like when when the cat I and mean, they don't talk about the Wendigo pointedly in the eighty nine version, uh, the Wendigo isn't brought up. But, you know, the cat comes back and the cat's kind of, you know, he's a nasty cat. He scratches people, but he doesn't try to kill anyone. He's kind of okay for most of it. So, but then when Gage comes back, Gage is this really evil force that wants to kill people. So I think there's like a little bit of, I, I think there's a little bit of debate as to what exactly it is that's coming back from, from the pet cemetery, you know, what is actually in that cat, what is actually in that boy, what is actually actually in Rachel when she comes back. And I think it would be more clearly delineated if, you know, uh, the fact that the cat came back, but the cat kind of doesn't have an evil agenda. It just kind of slinks around and falls over and is, you know, acts a little weird. Uh, what's interesting about this is there is a really fantastic novella from the early seventies by a writer called T.E.D. Klein. And, uh, the novella is called the events at Poe farm. And it's about a scholar who is studying great works of American Gothic literature. And he decides to rent a guest house on a farm in rural New Jersey. And the guest house on the farm is owned by a couple who are farmers. And, uh, they have a black cat. I'm pretty sure that the cat is black. And one day, the scholar sees the cat outside dead. And he doesn't want to tell them because this is their beloved cat. So he thinks, oh, I'm just going to let them find the cat for themselves. But then that night, he's watching TV with them. And the cat comes back. And the cat's very wonky, shares a lot of characteristics with church, you know, very strange, but also has this kind of knowingness to it. And then the narrative follows a little bit of a similar trajectory to Pet Cemetery. And I won't spoil it. People, if you haven't, if people haven't read it, they should go find it. This novel is really brilliant. Um, but what's interesting is that story really pinpoints exactly what it is that has entered that cat and then enters human beings towards the end of the story. Um, so I, I think it's it's interesting to debate what is exactly that's coming back. You know, is it is it the darkness of the Wendigo or is it a projection of ourselves or what we want or is it just, you know, uh, is it just a reanimated shell, you know, that's kind of trying to figure out how to live again? How much, you know, of the, the thing that died, does you know, how much of itself does it, does it remember?
1: I wonder if it is the Wendigo and it is that madness, then I wonder if that doesn't let Lewis off the hook a little bit for his decisions and Judd too, for that matter. Does it, uh, to some degree, does it excuse their actions? Do you think?
0: Um, well, I think that, I mean, I think that that I think in the novel, uh, Judd and Lewis are atoning for sins that that they've committed. I mean, both men confess to adultery and to have having had affairs. Lewis, I believe, had one affair and Judd had multiple affairs, I think. So there's there's always this idea of atoning for sins and the darkness of being a man. So uh and the darkness of, of what men desire. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's what makes this story so fantastic. You know, it's not just, hey, these people were really nice and then this bad thing happened. You know, there are all these uh questions surrounding how culpable are we for, I mean, a, a large part of this story is also around fate, and Cujo's about fate as well. You know, it's like, how do you, how did she end up in this Pinto? And it's all about you know, what do we do to get ourselves into these places? And how do we sometimes make these situations worse?
1: It's a very good point. And I, you know, uh, to go back to something you said, just a couple of minutes ago, you brought up a truly madly deeply. And I'm wondering, you know, not only is that talking about death, but it's, uh, you know, if I recall correctly, you know, it's also discussing like, what it's like to move on from a relationship that's ended, in a way, uh, I think. And I wonder if, You know, as with relationships, you know, when you're just in those first days after a a bad breakup, um, you know, it it does seem like that consumes one as well. But, you know, give it a month, give it five months, give it a year. And eventually with time and perspective, that sort of pain is alleviated, I think. And um, I wonder if the same wouldn't be true of, you know, it's certainly true when we lose someone. Eventually the pain becomes bearable. We can deal with it. Do you think Lewis and Judd would have made the same decisions if they had been aware? Well, let's say Lewis. Had Judd come to Lewis, say, long after the point that Gage had passed away, if he had been given a half a year, if he had been given a year, if he had been given a stretch of time to deal with that loss, do you think he would have been so easily swayed to make the decision he does?
0: Um, I think in terms of this story, I mean, time, time is always set. It's the great healer. So whenever something awful happens, um, you're just waiting for the passage of time where it doesn't feel so bad anymore. But in terms of this story, there's from the moment that they arrive at this house, there's this inevitability of what's going to happen. I mean, uh, you know, one would potentially think maybe if you have a toddler and you move into this house and suddenly this huge truck goes past, maybe you'd move out of that house really quick. You'd go, oh, hang on, maybe this is not such a good place to be. And then the cat goes. So, you know, it's there's there's an inevitability to this story that, you know, it's, it's just a chain of events that set in motion. It's kind of like watching dominoes just fall in a line um, that – I, I, for these characters, I don't think anything was going to stop what they were going towards. Um, and they, you know, if we didn't, if they didn't have a Mic Mac burial ground behind them, then they would have to deal with the situation. You know what I mean? Um, but I should also say, in bringing it, bringing it to the movie, and now we've talked about the novel a lot, but I actually, um, oh no, this is actually bringing it back to the novel, sorry. Uh, I, you know, I'm such a, a huge fan of this story and, you know, I've been to the filming locations and I've also been to the house where King wrote the novel. And I remember, you know, so clearly the house is really close to a highway. Like it's almost it's like metres from the highway and the trucks that go down that road, like they're terrifying. You know, they. Like I was standing at the side of the road trying to take pictures and these trucks just the, – the The road's so narrow that, uh, you know, I, it, it's terrifying how, you know, how close these trucks get to you and just kind of the thunder of, of the wheels and everything. And, you know, I, my first thought was, my God, how can anyone live on this road? I could never live on this road. So, um, I, you know, I guess it's just all about the, the choices we make. But, I mean – You know, when bad things happen to people, there's always that what if. What if I hadn't done this? What if today I hadn't done that? Or what if I had done this or had done that? It's this constant state of bargaining, which I feel is such an intrinsic part of the human condition and existence in the face of this huge unknowable. uh, We're constantly bargaining and trying to feel better about it and control events that are largely out of our control and you know i mean in that way pet cemetery is a bit of a lovecraftian cosmic horror uh story as well because i feel the events of the story and of existence are kind of largely out of the the character's control
1: absolutely and if we can talk for a second you mentioned this in your opening that stephen king actually wrote the screenplay for the film himself and it really occurred to me last night you know i've seen this movie any number of times but watching it again For whatever reason, I was really struck this time at how deftly the movie sets up the family dynamic. And not only that, but the world, it sets up the family. It sets up Judd Crandall, Missy, the pet cemetery, and really just the feel of this entire world in the space of 11 minutes. And it does so while still feeling like it's taking its time in that Stephen King sort of way. It allows us to get invested in the characters. It lets us sort of break in that world in the same way that one of King's novels does before the plot and horror really start to seep in. And, you know, it reminds me that horror movies don't often do that these days. You know, it's not even that the film is a slow burn. It just sort of confidently takes its time to set the stage before introducing the horror. And, you know, usually these days we have that big opening scare or we have something straight away that spells out H-O-R-R-O-R, you know. And I just (laughs) – I I love the script so much – for yet yeah, for any number of reasons, but especially for doing that, for feeling like a King novel brought to life, even though, you know, his books are usually pretty lengthy. They're heavy tomes sometimes. Pet Cemetery is certainly a larger novel, and the movie is what, maybe an hour and forty minutes, and yet it still feels like a complete tale. It still feels like King's novel boiled down not merely to its essentials. You know, it's not a bare bones telling of the tale, but it feels like it kept everything it needed to, to still feel like him. And of course, I mean, obviously that must come in part because, you know, he, he wrote it himself, but I I do think it is one of the better adaptations for that alone.
0: It is, it's a fantastic script. And, you know, often when novelists adapt their own work, they don't want to cut anything out and they don't know what to cut out. And you know you normally end up with these really long rambling films that uh, that really needed some condensing. But no, King knows exactly what scenes he needs, how to set things up, how to get things going. It's a very very succinct screenplay. And what's something interesting about the screenplay um, that I, that I've just recently discovered? There's a early uh, version of the script. That you can find online and uh, George Romero was originally attached to direct this film and that didn't end up happening and this version of the script was obviously written during the time that Romero was attached because within the script there are all these little sides a, a little conversation with George in there you know it's a very conversational script and King would write something like well you know we need a really big scare here George will know what to do. So there's all these little fantastic bits in it. Um, But also the the only difference in this early version of the script and what ended up on screen was for some reason in this script, uh, King made Judd, I mean, we all know that King loves rock and roll. He made Judd like a real rock and roller. So when you first meet him, he has like a Bruce Springsteen T-shirt on and he has a Walkman and he's always talking about rock music. So... That was a weird deviation from the character, which didn't make it to the finished film, which I think is, is good because obviously, uh, you know, King was obviously just on a bit of a rock kick when he did that. But in terms of the, the script and, and the story elements that are needed, he really hits everything well. And one of the camp factors that people are, Often point to is the character of Victor Pascal because he's kind of a sassy ghost and he's got quips and all of that and he's not quite like that in the novel but I think King made a really astute decision to make him an object of humour and relief because it's such a dark story. You need those moments of humour to just be to be released a little bit from the horror of the story that's unfolding. So you know some people think Pascal's a bit too camp but I actually appreciate as as, as someone who writes screenplays and, and, and works in the movie business that King uh, recognized this cannot just be Awful thing after awful thing after awful thing. I need to give the audience some fun. And that's what Victor became in the movie. And in the novel, he disappears from the novel by about the midpoint. And in the movie, he comes back at the end to help Rachel to get back home. Uh, I think I think he disappears by the middle of the book. Uh, so so King knew he needed that to make the movie work. So King knows how movies work. He knows the mechanics of movies and the best way to tell his stories. So, you know, when people say, you know, that the Pet Cemetery, you know, is is some people say it's not a great King adaptation. The guy wrote it himself. The master wrote it himself. So, you know, it deserves respect just purely on that level.
1: No, I agree entirely. And it is one of the best adaptations because he wrote it, I think. But also, you know, I remember this uh, story that I think it was in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, where David Cronenberg talks about adapting King's uh, The Dead Zone. And apparently King himself wrote the first adaptation, the first pass of the script. And uh, it's funny because this would have been maybe the early 80s, I think. And um, Cronenberg noted that King's screenplay opened with, uh, oh my God, it is leaving me. Um Oh, the candidate who winds up kicking the plot into motion, who's played by Martin Sheen in the film. Um, oh, Stilson. Stilson, thank you. Greg, is it? Greg. Um, it yeah. opens with him murdering somebody. Like, uh, you know, he's a slasher-type <laughs> character in, uh, in King's original screenplay adaptation of his own novel, and Cronenberg read it and thought, what the hell is this? And it seemed <laughs> like he was trying to go so far astray from his own novel, like he was trying to write something new. And yeah. he was like, well, maybe sh- novelists shouldn't adapt their own work, you know, for the screen. So it's funny that not even a decade later, he perfectly adapts one of his own novels. And I wonder if he learned any lessons from having a screenplay rejected <laughs> from somebody like Cronenberg that taught him to, you know, dive back into his own work, you know, and be more, you know, maybe true to it. But um, I don't know, weird aside, but I that just occurred to me. But also, you know, you mentioned Romero. And as much as I... You know, deep down, I kind of wish that George Romero directed every film. Um, <laughs> it's worth talking, I think, about Mary Lambert's work as a filmmaker on this movie because oh, this yeah. is such a damned effective, damned scary movie. And even, you know, I, it's funny you mentioned early on that some people regard this as a bit of a campy film. It doesn't really strike me that at many turns. You know, Pascal's humor, I think, feels very, very natural. In the way that it comes out, you know, um, I there's nothing in the movie that strikes me as having been intended to be dramatic or horrific that winds up coming off as funny or a bit embarrassing or cringeworthy. You know, Uh, I think everything works kind of perfectly, and I think she really knocked it out of the park. And I will say, you know, I I, as much as I love the original movie, and I do, I also think she did a hell of a job with the sequel, even.
0: yeah, I mean, Mary Lambert is a force of nature. She is incredible. Um, and I, I saw on Twitter the other week, uh, someone said that Pet Cemetery is still the highest grossing film, horror film ever directed by a woman. And uh, what's interesting is Mary Lambert got the job off the back of a film she directed called Siesta, which was a film about death and grief and the afterlife. And I think what... I think what, what's great about Mary Lambert is that she recognizes what she's working with. So, you know, she had her career as a music video director. She directed iconic musicians, you know, famously Madonna. She was, you know, helped shape who, who Madonna was in terms of like her music video persona. And you get the sense that Mary Lambert knew what was great about Madonna Wanted to communicate that as effectively as possible, and she had a really strong concept of concepts and and iconography. And I feel that in her approach to Pet Cemetery, she knew what was iconic about this story. She knew the big images. She knew the big beats. Uh, she knew uh, the elements of King's work that worked. And it's kind of like she knew she knew the importance of this story going in. So. You know, a lot of directors, you know, they, you know, I mean, I'm not saying she didn't put her stamp on this, she absolutely did. But sometimes when you, when you, like when you watch Carrie, you see so many De Palma tropes in there that it's just as much a De Palma film as it is a King film. And I feel like Lam- Mary Lambert really leaned into what makes. King Great, but also she brought a beautiful humanity to the story. She spent a lot of time with the family. She spent a lot of time setting up the family, making them someone that we cared about. She spent just as much time on, you know, the whimsy of of domestic life and, you know, all of those things and made us really care about these people uh, before the shit hit the fan. But then when the shit hit the fan, she didn't pull her punches. She went in really dark. I think another one of the great things about the movie is that, you know, there are so many practical effects that it looks, it looks real, you know, the locations are all real, you know, that it, the Mick Barrel ground is not on a soundstage, it's up in the National Park where King said it was, you know, so it all feels like it's really I'm not to say it's really happening, but it has an authenticity to it. And they did a lot of really brave things. You know, they put the scalpel in Miko Hughes' hand and they edited it in a way that made it look like he was really trying to kill someone. And I think that's what is really effective about the movie, that, you know, everything everything just feels real. Like my favourite scene in the film is when Lewis is going over to Judd's house to, to get Gage and he encounters church outside the house and he throws church a piece of meat and then he pulls out the syringe and he says, my favourite line in the film, which is, you know, today is Thanksgiving day for cats, you know, especially those that have come back from the dead. And then he puts the syringe in the cat and the cat begins to die and in this wonderful moment from Dale Midkip, who I think is fantastic in the film, he, this man on the edge screams out, be dead and they have this shot of the cat. And they've obviously shot the cat up with a sedative and it looks like a real dead cat. It's not a fake cat. It's real. And then he picks up—he picks it up by the neck and turns its face to face the camera and its eyes are just completely devoid of any sort of life. And it's like Mary Lambert just like holding up the face of the cat saying, here he's dead look at it and you know she kind of she gives no quarter at every turn which is great because king gives no quarter in his novel there are so many parts of the novel where he could he could give the audience and the reader some relief and he chooses not to and you know mary Lambert makes those same choices and you know it's pretty brave especially around you know 89 uh the films that were really popular then were you know were slasher films that had you know you know, iconic villains, and, you know, so the, the, things were very fantastical, you know, Freddy Krueger was a very fantastical villain, and, you know, th- this was about real death, and she was really, you know, it was just a really brave thing to do, but it's also interesting when you were talking about slashes before, um, the first time I knew of the existence of this film, was I was 11, I think I was 11 years old and I was at the Cineplex and I was coming out of a movie. I think it was like Back to the Future 2 or something, you know, something very fun and innocuous. And the first I knew of this this book or this movie was the poster and the poster, I'd love to know how they decided to do this poster. The poster is fantastic. And I think, and it's interesting because Pascal is not the main character of the story. You know, it's not about him. And yet he becomes the primary image on the poster. And I think they did that because at the time slashes were so big. You know, you had, you know, you had Freddy Krueger on posters, you had Jason. So I think they were trying to market it like in a similar ilk to other horror films that were out at the time. But that, that poster with that that dead gaze at you and the blood on his face and the eerie cemetery underneath and then even, the text, the way that they've put the text on the poster with, you know, the, uh, the the lowercase letters are on the wrong line. So it looks wrong. It's just like everything about this story is scary and wrong. And I, as soon as I saw that poster, I was like, that is, that, I have to see that movie at some point in my life. I was 11, so I wasn't allowed to see it. But I'm like, wow, that is the most amazing poster I've ever seen in my life.
1: I wonder, too, you know, it's funny. You noted that King really wrote Pascal in a way that he kind of releases the tension for the audience with his humor occasionally. And, But I wonder, too, you know, with them positioning him on the poster, with him being kind of the scary figure who's also a little quippy, you know, considering the time in which the movie was made, you know, we're, uh, we're probably a few Nightmare on Elm Streets in at this point. I wonder if there was ever the intention to make a franchise. Well, obviously they did a pet cemetery too, but I wonder if there was ever the intention to have a franchise. I mean, could you imagine Pascal heading up a number of other pet cemetery films where he tries and fails so very often to get people to simply not bury dead things in the pet cemetery or in the <laughs> burial ground?
0: You know, I think there are so many stories that could be told about pet cemetery. You know, I would be all for a TV series. Like, I mean, it's, I think the possibilities are endless and yeah, I can see Pascal going in there and being forced to constantly warn people away from it. But I mean, it's, it's interesting that once again, when you look at why things happen the way they do, uh, Pascal had to do it for Lewis because Lewis tried to save his life. So maybe he wouldn't care so much about helping other people. Maybe he'd be like, well, I've moved on to the afterlife now and uh, I'm doing my own thing and I'm happy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was, was it Kubrick? It might've been Kubrick who said that every ghost story is optimistic because it confirms the existence of life after death. So, uh, you know, after Pascal tried his best, he's, you know, he pops off and he'll go do what he wants to do. And, you know, I like to think he he doesn't have to hang around and, you know, constantly ward people off from this damn pet cemetery. (laughs)
1: All right. And I, I, I do you think uh, one last question I'll ask. Do you think <laughs> Pascal is, you know, much in the sense that the Micmac Burial Crown, the Pet Cemetery, uh, the Wendigo, uh, much as they're sort of agents of evil or agents of chaos. Do you think Pascal was meant to be representing, uh, you know, maybe an agent of good or at least, you know, some sort of higher reasoning that's meant to warn people away? Or do you think it was merely a ghost trying to do a guy a solid for trying to save his life?
0: Um, I, I think I, I'm not sure who has said this. It's either Mary Lambert or Stephen King, but one of them has said that and I think it might have been Lambert, that, that uh Pascal is a good angel and Judd is a bad angel. I mean the, the the word there is angel. So they're both angelic in nature, but you know one of them, you know, has different motivations. So I mean Pascal. I mean Pascal's a really interesting character because he, it really is a throwback to, you know, a Christmas carol, you know. It's a throwback to a really traditional horror trope of the ghost coming back to warn people. And, I mean, he's not integral to the story. You could have the story without him. And he has no real connection to Lewis apart from the fact that he was, you know, Lewis tried to save his life. Um, so so he's, he's an interesting He's an interesting character. Um, I think once again, he's just—if you look at this story in terms of you know, of the darkness in men's hearts—I think maybe he's just a, uh, you know, in in uh, you know uh, opposition to to Judd, you know, like the, the men who want to go and use it and want to get you know wild in the you know in the forest and all of that—and he's. He's the other side of that, which is, no, save yourself, save your family. You have a responsibility to your family. You need to look after them, stop burying them in the damn pet cemetery and, you know, live your life. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an impo- it's an interesting character.
1: All right. I think somehow, someway this hour has flown by. I think that's just about our time. Can I ask, do you have any final parting thoughts on Pet Cemetery?
0: Uh, I, I just, I want, I want to say that I think, you know, I really love the performances in this movie. Uh, I know some people don't think they're great. Uh, I think that, I think Dale Midkiff is fantastic in the film. You know, I really buy him as a man who is really struggling and, and by the time he's lost it at the end, he's really lost it. Fred, of course, everyone knows is brilliant. Um, but I think everyone in this film really does such a great job and uh, and really just get in there and uh, and they, they just knocked it out of the park. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I, once again, I think that it's a film that comes under some unfair criticism. And even though it's entered, you know, the cultural lexicon, you know, like everyone knows about, what a pet cemetery is, and what an Indian burial ground is, and all of these things. I think that Pet Cemetery itself has not had the sort of critical analysis that The Shining has, or The Stand, or other works by King. And I think it's really uh, Jewett. But I think that we, we're talking about time. As time passes, uh, I think that Pet Cemetery will come to be regarded is one of the greatest American Gothic novels ever written. And uh, this movie will, you know, as time passes as well, will be considered definitely one of the better adaptations of a King work.
1: Can we go ahead and call it a classic? Forget everyone who calls it a camp classic, it's not a cult classic, can we put our foot down right now and say, damn it, it's 30 years on now, this is one of the best King adaptations ever. Pet Cemetery is a classic.
0: It is an absolute classic.
1: I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for choosing such a great movie to discuss. Now, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future?
0: Oh, I um, hit me up on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I don't use it much. Uh, but I am on Instagram, and uh, yeah, I have, uh, I have a few films coming out this year. Uh, I worked on the remake of Castle Freak with Fangoria, and that is coming out this year, which is very exciting. Cannot wait for uh, that. Um, so, yeah, to, to keep up with uh, what I'm doing, yeah, Instagram is is the place to find me.
1: All right. Thanks again. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts. And I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much and have a great weekend.